Welcome back to our study on the wilderness wanderings, going through the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 9 today, but I'd encourage you before you go to Numbers 9, why don't you jump over to Exodus chapter 12. That's where we're going to end up first uh, in our study. A few weeks ago, Pastor, in his series on Colossians, was talking about uh, individuals who do a lot of planning for vacations, and especially certain types of vacations. And I have to admit, uh, our family, we're one of those individuals. We do a lot of planning when it comes to our vacation. And uh, I remember the first time we went to Disney World down in Florida, and we did uh, more planning than I thought was necessary for a vacation. But uh, as Sharon and I were working through, we, we talked to some friends who had gone before. We had little planning parties to just talk about what we were going to do because we figured if we're going to spend that much money to go on vacation, we want to make sure that we do everything that we want to do and get it all figured out. So we got planning calendars and Sharon has spreadsheets and we were going through and we spent time getting everything ready and then the day finally came. The day finally came not to go on vacation, but just to make our reservations. 180 days out, we got to make reservations for where we wanted to eat at. And so we would make all these reservations for which restaurants we were trying to get into. And then we'd set reminders even further than that because at 60 days and then at 30 days, there were things for called, called fast passes where you can get into a shorter line for a ride. And you're always trying to score the best ones for the best rides and trying to avoid the long lines. And so we would do all of this planning to go because truthfully, for a good Disney vacation, planning is a necessity. It's a must. There's no way around it. And I know for some people, they look and go, that's just ridiculous. That's, and that's fine. But that's, we enjoy that. And we enjoy even the planning uh, together, just working through that. It's a lot different from a, co- uh, a couple of friends I read about the other day. There were two friends who they just decided they were going to go on a, a bike trip for two weeks. And what they did is every morning they get up, they would be ready with their bikes, and they would ask themselves one question. They would say, left or right. And they would say, which way do we want to go? And whatever one they chose, that's the direction. They would just drive and drive and they would see what they could see. And whenever they would stop, they would stop and they would call it a night. And the next morning they would get up and they would completely do it again. Some of you, that may be the most exciting thing. And you may look and go, wow, that'd be great. I, that just does not appeal to me at all. In fact, I would say probably most of us don't plan our trips that way. So do I go left? Do I go right? Well, that was their, that was what they were trying to figure out. Now, when we talk about traveling, we talk about uh, planning to, to tr- take a trip. We're looking at that coming up here in the book of Numbers. We know that that's going to be happening. But there's another type of trip that people may plan for. It's moving day. What do you do? It's, it's completely different planning than you plan for your vacation. Now you're looking and saying, wow, we got to move. We've got to make sure we have all of these items. We start making lists. We start making checklists. We put reminders up everywhere. We're doing all of this because we don't want to forget anything. We want to make sure that everything we need to do, we want to make sure all our I's are dotted, all our T's are crossed, and everything is ready to go for moving. And, and so we move across town and we have that all planned. <clears throat> But you know, when you think about it, moving moving is intense. There's a lot of planning that goes into that. 
But what if it's a moving to a completely different area, a relocation? I think of our missionaries when they're, when they're going to a totally different field, all the different planning that has to go in, all of the new rules and the new laws and legislation they've got to figure out. Even for some in our congregation, you've moved from New England down to here. You've moved from out west to, to here. Or, uh, you know, just recently we had a family move from here all the way out to Kansas. And all of that that happens in the process, going to the two different places, trying to find houses, trying to figure out laws, trying to figure out what do I need to do with driver's license and banks. And there's a lot of planning and a lot of intensity that goes into that. When we come to the book of Numbers, we have to remember that this is what Israel has been doing. For the last year, Israel has been relocating. They have been moving around. In fact, if you, if you notice, from the time that Israel left uh, Egypt till now, we're talking where we're at in the book of Numbers. We're talking right around 14 months to when they're going to start moving again. During that time, notice, notice on the, the slide there, they're going to they're gonna move from Egypt then they're going to encamp in Succoth, then to Etham, then before Migdal. All of this you can find in Numbers chapter 33, where it will give you all the different camp enlistments. And when we get there, we'll study that more in detail. Or you can even follow it through in Exodus chapters 13, 14, 13 through 17. Basically, we'll give you all of these different encampments. You follow from Egypt. There's nine different encampments that they have until they reach down here to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai is where they have been for the last eight to nine months of their journey. And so Israel has been constantly transitioning. They've been relocating. Now they've been set for a little bit. And, and so, so we look at it and we say, okay, they've been on this constant move. They've been moving readily. So what, are the, what do they have going for them? What, what helps them get through that? And as we look at Numbers 9 today, we're going to see a little bit of, of God's perspective in the t- changes, in the transitions, what he's trying to, to help them and encourage them with. But remember, we said this back in our first or second lesson. Israel did great spiritually when they were stationary. We've been talking about it. In Numbers chapter 1 through 9, while they're at Mount Sinai, they're obeying, they're doing the, the things that God wants them to do. It's during those transition times, during the changes, during the movement, when things get upheaved, that they really struggle. They don't do very well with that. And so we know that transition and change are common occurrences in life. There's no way around the fact that we live in times where it's constantly changing. And we see that even more rapidly in our society. Change happens quickly. So how do we deal with change? How do we handle transition? How can we help ourselves in it? When we think of the wilderness wanderings, when we we get this perspective, I'm afraid sometimes we have what I'm going to call a Sunday school perspective on what's going on with Israel. Think, Think about it for a second. When, when I, and maybe you do the same, when I used to think about, okay, the wilderness wanderings, it's like, oh, cool. All right, we're going to follow this pillar of fire. There's a cloud leading us. Isn't that awesome? And it was. It was amazing. But after a while, it's like, okay, what are we doing? We're walking. You know, hey, we're going to go on a field trip. It's a vacation. It's, that's not what was happening here. 
it was not like, all right, where are we going to get to wander through which desert canyon next? There's, there's a difference in perspective from what we look back at. You know, yes, it was cool. But wow, we get to walk through the Red Sea. That would be awesome. I get it. I would love to have done that. But once you get through the Red Sea and now you're into a desert, there's a different perspective that we have. We can sometimes transplant back on them to those individuals walking. And we, we can come down hard on them because they're grumbling and complaining and all in the midst of, you know, look what God is doing for them. And it's true. Look what God was doing for them. And they, they became calloused at times to that. But we can have a, a, an interesting perspective, you know, but we, we do see it quickly fade, don't we? We see them. They've been walking. They've been wandering. They've been relocating for the last 12 to 14 months that's happening. We have to remember this. Every time that pillar is going to move, for the Jews during that time, it was moving day. It was transition. It was change. It was relocation. And I don't know about you, but that's not always fun. Our first five years of marriage, we moved five different times. We got to the point where we had boxes that we didn't unpack. Because we knew we were just in that stage of life where you were constantly trying to find the better rental. And, or, you know, it would change around. You would move locations. It's not enjoyable to just keep moving. And yet that's what we have to remember. Yes, it's really cool that the pillar moves because God is moving them. God is leading them. But for the individuals, it's transition. It's change. You know, we look at that Sunday school perspective. When it's time to move, what's going to happen? You got to pack up the tent. You got to find the kids. You got to make sure they have all of their stuff. You've got to herd the animals. Make sure you have your herds going with you. You've got to, you know, load up the carts. And then wouldn't you find yourself after, you know, nine different encampments over, you know, a, a year's time, would you find yourself asking questions like, all right, we're, we're moving again. How long are we going to walk this time? Okay, uh, when we settle down, okay, how long are we going to be encamped here? Do I unpack everything? Do I not unpack everything? How much do you, do you start only having the short pack trip and the long pack trip? And what do you, what do you have? You start thinking about that. They are in a state of constant transition and change. Their, their life is not completely settled. That's why there's going to eventually be what's called the conquest and the settlement of the land. When they get into the land, they're going to be able to settle down and have their, their places. But right now, this is a complete era of transition for the Israelites. So as we, we look at this passage, we have to look and say, don't forget some things. I don't know about you, but I do this. I put sticky notes in places where I don't want to forget it, or I write it on a whiteboard. When we're, when we're taking trips or vacations, we'll have sticky notes around the house. Hey, remember this, remember this. Don't forget this, don't forget that. And we, we have those. God understands that transition and change can be difficult. He knows that. And so he's going to give some reminders, some little sticky notes that can be put up. Reminders that Israel needed in their time of travel. And that's where we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 10. Now, I have you in Exodus. That's where, that's where we're going to start. But when we get to Numbers 9, you're going to see what I'm going to call God's first audiovisual ministry, the first AV ministry. You're going to have the, this visual sign of the cloud, and you're going to have these audio audible trumpets that are that are going to be sounding and god is going to use these two signs these two symbols to encourage the people 
to remind them about himself and some of the things that occur. Now, you're in Exodus chapter uh, 13. Go in Exodus chapter 13. And in Exodus chapter 13, we're gonna t- let's talk about the pillar first. The arrival of the pillar happens when they're back in Egypt. This pillar of uh, fire by night and a cloud by day shows up at the end of Exodus chapter 13. Notice down in verse 21. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them uh, the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. So this is the arrival of what is often called the Shekinah glory, the presence of God here in the camp leading and directing them. Verse 21 clearly says what was the purpose? It was there to lead the children of Israel as they're, they're coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea into the wilderness. This pillar was given by God to them in order to lead and lead them, direct them. And look at verse 22 again, just at the end. He took not the pillar of the cloud from before the people. It wasn't here and gone, here and gone. This pillar was present. It was there for the children to be able to see. It was the visible cloud. This, this visible cloud was the constant leading of God. It was present and it was a constant leading of God himself leading the children of Israel. You go to chapter 14, the cloud is going to be highlighted again when you get down to 19 and 20. It says, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, and the angel of God there, it's, it's highlighting the fact that this pillar is what we call a theophany. It is, a, it is the presence of God in, in their midst right there. Uh, most, most commentators hold to this. It's actually Christ. It's a Christophany. Uh, with the angel of God, that he is there, he is present. They don't see him in the flesh, but this symbol is, is God present with them. Uh, went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went before their face and stood behind them, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Do you remember what's happening here? This is when they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is coming against them and is quickly approaching from the the back. And the cloud is going to actually, one of the few times we see that the cloud moves from before the people to behind the people. Because usually the cloud is leading. But here God is moving to the back. Why? To protect them from from the rear, from Pharaoh's army. It was this holy hedge of protection that is being placed by God between the people and Pharaoh's army. God was protecting them with, with this pillar. So it reminds them of the protection of God. And then you go to Exodus chapter 40, the very end of the book. And uh, in Exodus chapter 40, you're going to see that the finishing of the tabernacle, which we've looked at this passage a few times because uh, Moses refers back to it as we, as we go in the passages through Numbers. But in Exodus 40 verse 34, you're going to look at what happens. The The cloud covers the tent, and the glory of the Lord, what does it do? It fills the tabernacle, verse 35, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory filled the tabernacle. It was the, when the tabernacle was complete, this pillar comes and covers the tabernacle. It goes into the Holy of Holies. It fills the tabernacle itself. And so God is present in the tabernacle all the time, and it rests thereupon. And so the people see that. Look in verse 38. It says that this was done, for the cloud was upon the tabernacle 
in the sight of all the house of Israel. Everybody knew. Everybody saw that God was present there. This was a visible depiction of the divine presence of God in the midst of the people. And so this cloud, this pillar, as it is there, we have already seen through Exodus what happens, that God is there, God is protecting, God is leading. Now, Numbers or Exodus 40 is where we pick up in Numbers 9. Now let's go over to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9 in our study through the book of Numbers here, we're at this point where in Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 to 23, it's going to pick up right where Exodus 40 leaves off. Again, out of some chronological order, but there's a, there's a really good practical reason for it. Remember, in Exodus, you had the Passover, then the cloud is going to be, when they're leaving Egypt, the cloud is going to be present, the pillar is going to be there in order to lead them on their journey. We're at the point in a transition in the book of Numbers where Numbers chapter 9, the first part, what do we have? We have Passover and the second Passover. Moses thematically places the cloud right next to that because they're familiar. Passover, the cloud is going to, the pillar is going to lead us. So that's what happens. And then they're going to go on a journey. We're getting to that. Numbers chapter 10, the second half, we're going to start moving. We're going to start seeing this, this journey take place. But in verse 15 and 16, it says, And on that day, uh, the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covers the tabernacle. So we, we highlight back to Exodus 40, but that's what is being said here. Moses is saying, okay, remember on that day? The cloud covered. God was here. The first day of the first month of the second year. We know that that is when that occurred, the, the tabernacle being finished occurred. So we look back, and it, verse 16 is really cool. It highlights what was already said in Exodus 40, but he says, so it was always. God's presence did not come and go. God does not forsake his own. He is there. He is aware. He is seeing. He's well, well in tune with what is happening in Israel's world and even in our world today. God is not caught off guard. The presence of God is always present. And so it's always there. Then if you go a little bit further, jump down to chapter 10, you're going to see that second symbol that occurs. The second symbol that is given are these two trumpets. Moses is told by God, again, the Lord speaks speaks to Moses saying, make two trumpets of silver of a whole piece thou shalt make them that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camp. So these trumpets were hammered out metal. That's the, the wording that's used, the idea. They're one piece of silver. They're, they're not like the modern trumpets we have with little valves that play, uh, but they're, they're the one, a long tube, uh, have the ability, most think that they're probably different lengths because you could do different sounds, different pitches out of them. They were not a ram's horn. They're not a sapar or shofar. Um, they're not the ram's horn curly trumpet that they use on the Day of Atonement. These were specific silver trumpets that were used for specific purposes. 
these were already being used in Egypt. So this was not some new technology. They, they, Egypt and during the Bronze Age, they'd already been able to figure this out. So the, the Jews may very well have already known how to make it and God giving the ability. They make these trumpets and they were able to be blown with varying uh, tones, with varying cadences and blasts. So you could give different abilities to, to communicate through these trumpets and they could be heard from, mile, uh, from distances away, great distances away. So they were loud. They were very clear on what was to be done. So what was the purpose? Verse 2, we already highlighted a little bit. It was to call the assembly together. We, what does that entail? It, it's, it was there to bring them in, to give them information so that they would be able to. Moses needed to talk to either the assembly, uh, which would be the, all the men coming together uh, as representatives of all the houses, or would it be just the princes? But he, he used it to call them, the, the priest would call them together to there. It was an audible sound of communication from God is what it was. They would hear that God wants to tell them something. So Moses gets direction and, and information from God. How do I get everybody in? We blow a certain blast on the trumpet. The people come in and then Moses is able to communicate what God has given to him to share with the people. It was also used for the journeying of the camps. Remember, this is, this is a military encampment. This was a military census that is happening in Numbers. So they are now marching orders. How do we do it so we're not chaotic? How do we do it so we're orderly? And God gives them specific, when this happens with these blasts of the trumpet, you need to, you need to be ready. So he gives audible direction to the people. So, so God, when we start looking here and seeing these symbols that, that God is using for the people, he's not just chaotic in what he does. God is orderly. God desires that they know what they're doing, when they're supposed to do it, and he lays, lays that out for them. So the sounding of the trumpets, verses 3 to 10, look in verse 7. It's interesting that there is a distinction. It's not just, you know, this random happenings. God says, but when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound an alarm. And there's two different words that are used here in the Hebrew for one for blow, one for sound the alarm. So in verses three, four, seven, eight, ten, you're going to see this word blow. And what, what it entails is a longer, a longer blast, a longer note that's going to be held out, maybe multiple notes, but we, we know that there's length to it as opposed to the, the blow an alarm or sound an alarm that's used in five, six, seven, and nine, those are short blasts. They're quick. Now, how long quick is, we, we don't know all of that, but we know that there was a distinction between the sounds. In fact, there's a, if you look through the passage in verses seven through 10, you'll start to see that when, when they're to assemble the uh, congregation together. There's going to be a long blast on both trumpets. Okay, maybe there's two different tones probably. When both of those, then all the adult males are to assemble. We see that um, in verse 3. Verse 4 talks about when there's just one long blast on the trumpet, then it's the chieftains or the, the leaders of the assembly. They come to the tabernacle. And then you get the breaking of camp. If you... Uh, Verse five, when you blow an alarm, when the camp, then the camp that lies at the east part, the, the camp of Judah and the other tribes with Judah, they're going to move out. And then on the second blast, the second sounding of the alarm, 
Then the tribes to the south, Reuben's, Reuben's camp, they're going to move out. And it's, it's understood then, and we see it happen in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 22 and uh, 25, where the other camps are going to follow suit as well. So as those successive blast soundings of the alarm are given, they are then going to march in order with assemblance, with direction given to them by God. In fact, at the, you get to the end and it even talks about when you're in the land, verses 9 and 10, uh, in your land against the enemy and they, they're going to come against you. And when they're coming against you, you're going to hear a certain sound. And it's like, hey, this is a we're going to war sound. And then there's even the celebration sound in verse 10, where it talks about when it's time for certain feast days and special times and certain sacrifices of celebration and joy and fellowship. We're going to sound this trumpet and we're going to, we're going to let it out with these long celebratory blasts. And you, you look and say, okay, this is, this is really intense with these trumpets. God has direction. God has purpose. I really like the fact that if you think about God uses these trumpets to call his children to him, to give them direction. And you think about, will we ever hear a trumpet? Some of us may. Some of us may not. But the next trumpet of God that's going to be heard, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they talk about the trump of God shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord. He's going to be calling his children back to him. Just like he uses the trumpet to call the people to the assembly. One day that trumpet is going to sound. And we who are ready for that and are prepared and are saved. We're going we're gonna to be called up together to meet with our God. It's, it's, to me it's a really a really cool perspective on these, the, the trumpet of God. Probably not these two trumpets, but the idea of the sounding of a trumpet. I just think it's a really neat New Testament perspective on that. But let's, let's keep going. As we, as we look at these trumpets and the, the, the pillar, whether you were in your tent or at the tabernacle, you were doing something, when God moved, when he said it is time, you either saw it or you heard it. You were either going to hear these trumpet blasts or you were going to see it. And what's interesting is who, who, is the, who are the ones who are supposed to sound the trumpet? Did you notice in verse 8? And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be for you an ordinance forever throughout your generation. So the priests are the ones who blow these trumpets. Who, where do they work? They work at the tabernacle. There's never going to be this, this moment where, oh no, how did we miss that the, the pillar left? The, the priest knew. So Israel knows there's going to be, and it's just God's communication to his people. Hey, it's time for change. It's time for transition. Let's go. And so God uses those two symbols as we go through. Really what God is doing is God is getting them ready for the transition in their life. He's getting them prepared to go through change. And he knows that when we go through difficult or changes, when we go through transitions, that change can be difficult. So he gives us these theological reminders. Here are these little post-it notes we can put up around our house in the middle of our situations. What, is, what does God say with these symbols? It's not just a Sunday school lesson that says, oh cool, there's trumpets and, and a pillar. What do they represent? What is, what is happening? First of all, they're reminded through these uh, symbols that God is present with his people. 
God is there. When all the Israelites saw the pillar, they knew God was abiding with them. He was there. His presence meant comfort. They could go to bed at night knowing that God was present, knowing that God was going to protect them, knowing that there was a sustaining grace given to them by God, knowing that because God is present, we're going to have food. They might not like the food every day of the same thing, but they know that it's going to be there. They know that God is gracious and caring and present with them. In the midst of all of their change and transition, whether it's in an encampment or on the move, when they saw the pillar, they knew God was there, God was protecting them, God was sustaining them. In all of that transition and change. What else do we see? We see that God leads his people. The pillar was out in front. Only in that one instance where it goes back to protect do we see it that God was in the back? God is leading his people. He is their guide. He is the best guide in life. He's the one who sees what we can't. He could see far ahead. He knew the armies that were going to come against them. He knew what was happening. He sees, God sees what we cannot. He knows what we cannot. We, we don't, what we don't know, God knows. He is well aware of my job situation, your job situation. He is well aware of what happens in a month and a half with the election. He is well aware of when a vaccine, if a vaccine is ever found. He knows these things. We don't. And that annoys us. It frustrates me that I can't know some of those things. But God is leading and my God knows. And I, have, I can trust and rest in him, knowing that he understands the best path. He understands that my path is A to B, and it's easy. His path may be A to C to Z to Q over to B. But if that's God's path for our life, then that is the best path we can be on. I was uh, reading recently, I enjoy hunting. It's coming up on hunting season. Most of you know that. And on my bucket list, one day, maybe sometime I'll be able to take a trip out west and go elk hunting. I would love to be able to do that. So I often read little articles on elk hunting and just watching and, and seeing what happens. And I came across an article uh, a few, about a month and a half or two months ago about an individual who was a pretty well-known hunter out west. Uh, and he went on a guided, a guided hunt with a, with a, a guy up in uh, the Montana region, and they were going to go, they were going elk hunting. And they spotted a world-class trophy elk off in the distance across a valley on another ridge. And where they were, where their perspective was, he was looking, and the, the hunter looked at the guide and said, I want that one. He's like, okay, let's go this way. And if we, the guide said, let's go this way and we'll go across. And the guy said, no, 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 no. The, the elk's going that way. And I'm looking at the terrain. And so I'm going to, I think we should go this way. And the, the hunter relayed that they, they had a debate about this. And the hunter was so stubborn about it. The guy finally said, that's fine. That's fine. So they took an hour or hour trek around the mountain, looking to ambush this elk. And when they got to the spot that the hunter wanted to be at, he poked his head, was able to look across. He was looking. He's like, where is this elk at? Where is this elk at? You know what's going to happen. 
the guy, the guy looks at him and says, use your, use your glasses, use your binoculars, look across. And that elk was exactly where the guide said it would be. It was because the, the guide understood, as they, they laid out the article, the guide understood that there was a ravine and there was an inability for the elk to cross this way, so the elk was going to have to double back across the valley. He knew the path. He knew. He could see what that guy, the hunter could not see. I know some of you are probably like, yay, the elk got away. I, I understand that. But don't miss, don't miss it. Don't we do the same thing with God at times? He's guiding us. He's saying this is the best path. He's taking us through tumultuous and changing and transitioning times. And we're like, God, I don't like this. I want to do it this way. I want to go back here. I want what I had. I don't want where you're taking me. God is the best guide. He is directing. He is leading through transition, through change. What else do we learn? Don't forget, God communicates with his people. He used those trumpets to say, hey, come, listen. I want you to assemble together. I want to give you marching instructions. I want to let you know about the celebration. But it was intended to communicate with them. And God is always communicating. These all were different ways that God could communicate, and he still communicates with us. The trumpets were also shown as a way to rely upon God, that they were trusting in what God had said. In verse 9 of chapter 10, it says... That uh, And if you go to war in the land against your enemies that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm, sound the alarm with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God. It wasn't that God forgot them, but God is saying, when I see that you're doing this, when you're relying upon me, I, I've got your back. I'm there for you. I will remember. I will be there for you. I know what I have promised and said. I will protect you. But it was a reliance that the people had to show upon God in that. So God is communicating. And God, God still communicates with us. We'll get to that other one in a second. When we're going through our transitions of life, through changes in our life, do we forget God? Do you remember in James it talks about, oh, today we're going to go buy and we're going to sell. James 4, I believe it is. We're, we're going to buy, we're going to sell. But they never consult the Lord. And they ought to be saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or this. And they, they practice a, really a practical atheism where, yes, we, we know that there is a God, but we never consult him in our daily life. God is still communicating with us. Do we look in the changes and say, what does God's word say about X, Y, Z? What is God communicating to me? Is he communicating to me on a daily basis? How does he do that? Through his word, through prayer. As we pray to him, we communicate to him. He responds through his word, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, through other believers as we fellowship and we meet together and we encourage one another and we build one another up. He uses all those avenues to direct and to communicate and to help us. Don't miss God's communication in the midst of transition and change. And then we know that God directs. We know he guides, but he gives, he gives direction. He doesn't leave us wondering what to do. We may not know exactly at the moment what to do, but at the same time, we know if I don't know what to do, all I have to do is do what God wants me to do. That sounds really cliche, I know. But I just, I follow God's commands. Daily, I just walk and do what God expects me to do. Time with him. Time in prayer. Sharing the gospel. Serving others being kind, being respectful, 
working hard, being industrious, uh, not cowering in fear, but to, to move forward in life. He expects us to be doing those things. We must learn to listen to, to follow, and to rely upon him. God is directing. And he will, we, we say it all the time, oh, he'll direct my path. The steps of a good man, they're, they're ordered by the Lord. But do we, do we really hold to the fact that God is directing us? That God has placed us into situations that we may not like, but God knows we can handle them. And he's not going to take me beyond what I can. He's going to give me the grace to, to be able to be sustained through those times. He uses the priests, as I mentioned. Why does he do that? He directs because the priests can give wise, uh, wise information. They can be observant. They can help. But God is directing in our lives, in change, in transition. We can look in our lives. Whether you think masks are great or you think masks are ridiculous, whether you think protests are, are just great peaceful protests or you see them as, as really ridiculous riots, if you're on the side, you think socialism is great or you just, this is, a, this is an election that's going to send us down, and I, it is a very important election. Is it socialism? You know, maybe you're, you're there. Maybe you're looking and saying, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm fearful about the, the rioting that's going to happen. Is it going to happen here? I'm fearful about what's going to happen with churches. Are they going to be locked up? Are we going to be able to meet anymore? Are we going to be able to, to have fellowships together? Are we going to start being closed down and face, uh, face uh, persecution? We don't know all those things. We see all the the tumult, you know, the tumultuous times in our society. We see all of that happening. And yet in the midst of all of that chaos, in our chaotic world, we have a constant God. In the midst of Israel's chaotic travels, and they're moving back and forth, their constant was God. And if we're going to navigate through these times that we are living in, through the changes, through the transitions, we are going to have to rely on the fact that God is constant. What is the world going to be like after the pandemic? It's going to change. There are going to be differences. And if we're just going to hem and haw and sit here and just say, I just want to get back to the way it was in January of 2020, it's, it's going to be different. There are going to be changes. There's no way around that. So how do we navigate? How do we change? What do we do? How do we transition through this? We, we know these theological truths. We look, but no matter the situation, no matter the transition, no matter the change in life, we can be confident that God is present, that God is leading, that God is communicating, that God is directing. We, we know that theologically. We would all ascribe to that. We know and we see them. But in the midst of transition and change, do we practice that? Do we allow that to be fleshed out? Or are we, we cowering in our own fear? Are we shrinking back? Are we nervous? Yes, there's, general, there's real fear. I get that. And yet at the same time, I have to accept the fact that God's well aware, that God is present, that he's leading, that he's communicating with us. He's directing. But what do we have to do? 
we know these truths. What do we do? We must respond appropriately to the divine directives that have been given to us. We must, in the midst of transition, in the midst of change, what do I need to do? How do I fix it? What do I need to do? What do you need to do? We need to just respond appropriately appropriately to the divine directives, to what does God tell us to do? How does he tell us to live? How does he tell us to live with other people? How does he tell us to communicate his word? How does he tell us to have a relationship with him? What we are to respond to his commands, period. Look, look at portions. We skipped a big section of this. There was a reason. Look at the divine directives that happened. Look back in chapter 9. There are going to be nine different times in this passage that you're going to see the phrase, at the commandment of the Lord, or that they kept the Lord's charge. The same concept here, that they were listening to the commandment, the charging of the Lord. Look in verse, uh, verse 17, or verse 18. At the commandment of the Lord, the children of Israel journeyed. At the commandment of the Lord, they pitched their tents. Verse, uh, verse 19, Israel kept the charge of the Lord. Verse 20, according to the commandment of the Lord, they abode in the tents, and according to the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. Whether it's by day or night, verse, verse 21 tells us. Uh, look down in verse 23. There's no, there's no dot denying this. There's no way around it. Verse 23 says, At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in the tents. At the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. What were they doing in the midst of all of their constant upheaval and transition and change? What were they doing? What God told them to do. They were simply obeying the commandment of the Lord, the divine directives of God. What did the clouds signify about the Lord's commands? Look, look at what it says. In verse 17, it, talks, it tells them where to go. In, in this place where they were going to, verse 17, uh, the, when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, then after the children of Israel journeyed in the place where the cloud abode, there the children of Israel pitched their tent. So God told them where to go. He said when to go. In verse 18, as long as the cloud abode here, then you would stay. When it would move, it was time to go. It would tell them what time of day, whether it's by day or by night. They were to obey at the commandment of the Lord. This is what God has said. How long were they to stay? Verse 22. This one, this one just messes with me because I'm like, oh, could you imagine pitching your tent one day and the next day you got to pick it up and go again? But it says, whether it would be two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried on the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, they journeyed. This, this, whole, this whole section is just very boom, 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 boom. They obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed. They did what God told them to do. Doesn't matter what time of day, doesn't matter how long. They weren't questioning, they were just saying, I'm going to obey the commands of God. That's where they were at. What about the trumpet? How does that signify? When are we to assemble? Verses three and four. Is it to be all the princes? Is it to just be some? Is it to be the entire congregation to get together? But the, the trumpets would tell them when they are to assemble. It, it would tell them when they are to march. It would tell them when they are about to go to battle or when they are to celebrate. 
So, so the, the divine directives through this passage are present. Here they are. Do this. God's divine directives demand human response. How will you, how will I respond to God's commands today? I can't change what's happening in the world. I can change how I respond to what God tells me to do. I must be following his directives. There is no middle ground with God. Think about it in this passage. Were they going to follow or not? Were they going to march or not? Were they going to move or not? Were they going to assemble together or not? Were they going to worship, celebrate, sacrifice together or not? It was one or the other. And if they didn't, there was obviously consequences to that. If they decided, yeah, I don't feel like marching today. You guys go on ahead. What's going to be the natural? Is it going to be difficult for that individual living in the, the wilderness without the community around them, without God providing for them manna every day? Absolutely. There wasn't a middle ground. It was either you obeyed or you were going to face suffering. You were going to face consequences. When it comes to God's commands and our response to them, there's not this middle ground. What does God tell you you're supposed to be doing? And are you doing it? It's pretty straightforward. And God highlights that with this whole passage. And, and you have to ask yourself, why? At least I, these are questions. Why is God able to give directives, make demands upon people? How do we know that we can if we choose to keep those? Uh, how do we know that we can do it if we choose to keep those directives? How can we keep them? Really? Can we do it? How is it that God can lead and allow us in these times of change and transition and tumult? How can, we, how can we do that? How can he expect us to live, to abide by his word in these times as Christians in this hostile environment? How can he expect it? Why would he, why would he want me to do it? Can he really make these demands upon my life? Absolutely. Look how he ends this section. Chapter 10, verse 10. I am the Lord, your God. Period. I am the Lord, your God. How do you respond to my commands? What I have told you to do. What I am expecting of you. I'm not expecting you to change the world. I am expecting you to obey my word. How are you responding to God? Some of you would never go on a trip without AAA. Because AAA is going to do what? They're going to protect you. They're going to help you plan your trip. They're going to be there if you break down. They're going to come to your rescue. They're going to come to your aid. And AAA is going to be the one that you can communicate with. They're going to be the one who leads you. They're going to be the one who guides you through your whole journey. And AAA is our life-saving, sending, uh, our, just it's that entity that we want when we travel. Because they will come to our aid in those chaotic moments of our, of our journey. More than AAA, in the moments of our journeying right now, <clears throat> we are journeying through difficult times. AAA doesn't have the answer, but God is better than AAA. We know that. So how do I respond? 
in the middle of this change, in the middle of this transition of our world, how are you and I going to respond to God's directives? We must. Where do we start? Right here. Responding appropriately to the directives given to us by God. You can do it. You can face this world and all of the chaos because of our constant God. He is consistent. And he's consistently communicating with us. Spend time with him. Get to know him. And follow what he tells you to do. God, I pray that you would help us this week to respond appropriately to your directives in our life. Thank you for your abiding presence. Thank you for your guidance. Lord, thank you for your leading. Thank you for communicating with us. And God, we pray for our country. We pray for all that is happening. We know you are in control. Give us wisdom and how to live your way in this world. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us.